Well, our, our culture has many buzzwords. One of the buzzwords today is justice. The only problem is, what is justice? Can a culture that has rejected God, that has uh, cultivated an anti-God agenda, substituted absolute truth for whatever truth of the day or cause of the day that they want, can that actual culture create or define justice and I'm going to say absolutely not. Society doesn't know what justice is. They only know that they need it. Justice is an attribute of God because justice itself then requires a just judge. It requires a fair judge. It requires a perfect judge. It requires a perfect judge who knows the actual truth, not culture's truth to you. That, that crazy idea that truth actually exists, right? The crazy idea that there are things that are actually true, not just what it means to each of us. Why even pursue justice? In a word, I'd offer hope. It's the hope that things will change. But again, if we don't know what true justice is, doesn't that mean our hope is going to be misplaced? Where is true hope of actual justice found? That's the question we have to answer this morning, and Jesus is going to help us do that. So, you know, trust you are already in Matthew chapter 12, where Len read for us last week. Again, we looked at a major confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees, where he ended up taking them to school on the correct interpretation of God's law, especially with regard to the Sabbath. Jesus has the authority to do so. Actually, only Jesus has the authority to do so. He proved, but he proved that supernaturally by then healing a man with a paralyzed hand and saying, yes, this is actually, I do have the authority to do this because I am God in the flesh. I hope we are reminded of the need for our own Sabbath. As New Covenant believers, we're no longer under the yoke of the law of the Sabbath, but we should all take advantage of what we've been given for a Sabbath, a day of rest and devotion to God, and we would do well to plan and prepare and prioritize for that day. And we rejoice in the rest that only Jesus can provide. But a common theme in Matthew is not only Jesus fulfilling the law, but also how he's fulfilled the prophecies as well. And that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning. Look at verse 15 to remind us of what Len just read. And Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all. And he ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And so in verse 14, last week we saw the Pharisees were already sufficiently done enough with Jesus that they wanted to kill him. Why? Because Jesus was running around claiming to be the Messiah. He was running around correcting their interpretation of the law. He was running around saying he has authority to do this. And if that gets out, like the Pharisees' whole world is over. Their jobs, are, they're unemployed for one, right? And then also, Jesus would then, if he is the true fulfillment of the law, he is a direct threat. Isn't it funny how they would think that way? Instead of saying, wow, this is the fulfillment of the law. We should probably get on board with this. No, but they couldn't look past their own faces into what it meant for them. And Jesus, perfectly aware of how much they were, or how much he was a threat to them, chooses that moment then to withdraw and to go away, to kind of take the pressure off the situation for a little while. 
And also, so he's balancing this, this pressure of the Pharisees who want him dead, but he's also then balancing the pressure of this growing fanaticism of the crowds. Obviously, going around healing people, that gets around pretty quick. So he's trying to balance all those two extremes, right, while still trying to do the work of the ministry. So every once in a while, he's got to withdraw. Every once in a while, he's got to go and he's got to pray. Anybody else in here just feel like every once in a while, I just can't today? So I just need, I just need to withdraw. All right, Jesus gives us a little biblical example of that. Sometimes it's necessary for him to distance himself. Indeed, Jesus gives us that example. How many times will we see or have we seen in the Gospels where Jesus just withdraws to be, withdraws to be alone to pray, to get alone with God? And indeed, we have to do that as well. If Jesus had to do it, how much more so do we have to do it, right? Our text tells us that the crowds followed him. So Jesus tries to get away, but then he looks in the rearview mirror and he's got hundreds of people following him, right? And what did Jesus do? What did our text say? He said, go away. Can't you see I'm stressed out? Leave me alone. Pharisees are trying to kill me. You guys are driving me crazy. Everybody take a number. Where are the disciples? Can we get some crowd control here? No, he doesn't talk. He doesn't say any of that. He says he heals them all. That's what he says. We see Jesus' power and ministry of tremendous compassion for the hurting and for the broken. Jesus serving out of what's surely got to be fumes already in his own spirit. He then turns and heals and cares for others when he was trying to get away. You know, there are, there are mundane concerns. He, he tries to control the chaos of the crowds by ordering them not to tell anyone. He's like, look, I'll do this, but don't tell anyone. I, I read that and I kind of giggle because I'm kind of like, okay, Jesus, like, you're still God. You, really, you didn't think that was going to work, did you? Like people are going to go, like even, you know, Bob who had the shriveled hand, he's going to come home and be like, hey, Bob, what happened to your hand? It's like, uh, well, I don't know. I can't tell you, right? No, of course he's going to tell you. He's going to, this guy healed you, right? So, so I, I giggle to myself. This is also a favorite punching bag of the agnostic and atheist uh, thought that says, well, if Jesus really was the Messiah, why did he tell everybody to keep it a secret? It's like, well, he didn't all the time. We've already seen that, mostly in the Gentile region. Jesus would say, go and tell all, you know, of what I've done for you. But this, that always strikes me as funny, and I giggle to myself as well, because it kind of seems like common sense. Like, Jesus doesn't want madness everywhere he goes. So he's just trying to control the fanaticism a little bit to let him move around a little bit more free. Like, think of it. If there are hundreds of people holding on to you, trying, begging you to heal them, it's just plain hard to walk around the city. So Jesus is trying to control that madness a little bit. He had work left to do, and he's trying to do it in as much of an unencumbered way as possible. But Matthew says this is all, he's showing proof who the crowds and the Pharisees thought Jesus was and how it all works then, Matthew says, to show that everything is part of the larger fulfillment of Scripture. He says all of this that's happening right now is part of what was fulfilled or what was to be fulfilled in the prophet Isaiah. And Matthew pulls no punches in claiming that Jesus fulfills the prophets and that he is the Messiah. That's what we've seen time and time again. Matthew then gives his longest Old Testament quote in the whole book. 
as he calls upon Isaiah as his witness. And so let's look at just the first verse in that quote in verse 18. He says, this is what was to fulfill that was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And my Bible, it's indented, right? So maybe some of your Bibles, it's bolded or italics or something. And that usually means what's coming is a quote from the Old Testament, right? So this isn't necessarily Matthew's words, right? Turns out that the Old Testament is quoted quite a bit in the New Testament. And so verse 18, he starts quoting Isaiah, says, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Matthew mentions a servant, which is a common prophetic way, especially in Isaiah, of talking about the Messiah. And so already, don't forget, Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience here. So already, Matthew's going to drop Isaiah, and he's going to drop Isaiah 42. Most maybe people had that memorized from Jewish Sunday school, right, or whatever it was. They, they start to hear the word servant, and their ears perk up. I don't know why I'm doing this with ears, but their ears perk up. <laughs> and they say, he's talking about the Messiah. He says, right from the jump, he's saying that this fulfills the prophecies that we have seen in the servant songs, the Messiah, Isaiah 42 and, and, and onward straight out of Isaiah. But if you look closely, if we were to go to Isaiah, which you know we're going to go to Isaiah because all the Bible we got to look at in context here. So of Isaiah 42, it says this, behold my servant whom, a servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Okay, it's, it's pretty close. But Matthew said, uh, he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And now Isaiah says he will proclaim justice to the nations. What is the deal with that? It, seems, it says the same thing in Isaiah, in the Greek translation of Isaiah in the Septuagint. It talks about nations. And so the word goyim in Hebrew and the word ethne in Greek, it has a general meaning of anyone who isn't Jewish. Right? Back then, people in, in Israel who were Jewish, they had a two-level view of the world. There was us, the chosen people of God, we were Jewish, and then there's everybody else. Right? That big bucket of everybody else could be called Gentiles, could be called the unregenerate, could be called not the people of God, could, could be called people you don't send Christmas cards to, right? Except that Jewish people wouldn't send Christmas cards, so that was a trick analogy there. But what Matthew is saying is he is calling upon this. He's dropping this word. He's going to proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And so maybe the, the Jews that were hearing him drop Isaiah were all of a sudden like, wait, what? I was with you all the way till that last part because it doesn't say Gentiles on my app in my Bible of the Old Testament scrolls. It says it says nations. Why are you bringing the Gentiles into this, Matthew? It really had to take them by surprise, but it really shouldn't be a total surprise because the redemptive plan of God has always been global. It's always been global. All the way back from when God called Abraham before he actually created the nation of Israel and he called Abraham to create the nation of Israel, he said what? All of the nations of the world will be blessed. How? Through you meaning through your people, through your line. And we know that the Messiah was to come through the line of Israel. And it shouldn't have been a surprise, right? Because that's what he said from the beginning. Then 
all of the nations would be blessed through you. All of the peoples of the world is actually what it says. It's further reinforcing a claim that Jesus was this long-prophesied Messiah. Matthew includes language also. Did any, any other bells ring in your head when we were reading this first part? My beloved, maybe whom my soul is well-pleased. He's going to put my spirit upon them. And anything else ring any bells? Maybe from something we've already studied in Matthew. Maybe from something in Matthew chapter 3. Maybe from something that involves a baptism of Jesus. Look at verse 13 of Matthew 3. Then Jesus came to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. So we've got this that already happened in Matthew. We've got a throwing back to Isaiah 42. And then we've got Matthew again quoting this in Matthew 12. Huh, turns out maybe all the Bible does say the same thing. It does. It's talking about the redemptive plan of God. and It's talking about the Messiah. And there is no question that Matthew is saying Jesus is him. He is the Messiah. He is the one that Isaiah pointed to. It already happened at his baptism. We heard the voice of the Father. We saw the Spirit descend on him like a dove. And now this is further evidence of who Jesus is. He is the messianic servant. And we pull that all together. That Jesus is the servant Messiah to come. And that this Messiah is not just for the Jews, but for the whole world. And what specifically will he do? It says, behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I'll put my servant on him, and he will, he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Or maybe bring news of justice. And so I'll say it this way, the mission of the Messiah is justice for the world. The mission of the Messiah is justice for the world. And with that, again, we ring the cultural buzzword bell that this word and this world rather, is crying out for justice. Justice in allowing women to have an abortion or not. My body, my choice. Justice for LGBTQ agenda. Justice, of course, for social justice. Vaccine justice. Justice for the refugees. We are never lacking in a cause for justice, are we? Just open up your news app. You will see somebody else crying out for justice, but church is that the justice that the Messiah is coming to bring to the whole world? That's what we have to answer today. To the extent that those, that those causes are true and good and biblical, we'd say yes. But we have to resist. Listen, we have to resist the temptation to capitulate to the cultural definition of justice at the expense of the biblical definition of justice. Because when we talk of justice, we have to talk of God himself. Because God is justice. God is the very definition of justice. He is perfectly just. He is fair. He is good. He is balanced. He is impartial. We are not, are we? 
And so when we look at a cause or we look at a group or we look at a thing and we say that's unjust, we've got to remember that we're looking at it with our three-pound fallen brains. And we might not be right. Or we might have sin that is impacting that in some way, shape, or form, which we definitely would be. And let's be extremely leery of what a culture that has rejected God, that has rejected exclusive truth, is going to tell us what justice is. We need, to, we need to definitely, definitely keep that in our hearts and our minds. Sometimes we can get close to the idea of justice. We can get close to what God honoring justice is. Other times we are much farther away and all, of course, because of the lingering noetic effects of sin that affect our hearts and our minds and our judgment and all of that. We look to justice, we look to God, and specifically what he's given us in Jesus Christ. The mission of the Messiah is justice for the world. And we spin this to our justification for sin, and that's right and good. And of course, that's the mission, right, of Jesus that came because we're the ones who actually need justice first right? We're the ones whose souls have rejected God. We're the ones who have separated ourselves from God, and so we need justification. Big Bible word, right? We need to be declared innocent because we're actually guilty. So the mission of the Messiah to bring justice for the whole world is to justify those who are guilty. That's one, one aspect of the mission that supersedes every other mission, right? We go from guilty to innocent, right? But we have to remember that God was the one who was sinned against. God was the one who was rejected. God's the one who is legitimately angry for being kicked out of his own creation, right? Talk about an injustice. That's the biggest injustice that ever was. That God's creation rejected the creator. And so when we think about justice, we've got to start there. We've got to start about God's need for justice. We all have a need for justice, of course, but we need to be justified by God, and we're the ones that created the problem. So God works his justice. God redeems his holiness, and through Jesus Christ, of course, his holiness is vindicated. But, but okay, fine, right? We have these big theological kind of nerdy things that we talk about, our justification, God's justice, but does that mean that God turns a blind eye to any other injustice that he sees on the earth? After all, I mean, if injustice is actually injustice, it's part of the sin that God came to deal with in the first place. But it's still here on earth. And so how does God deal with human injustice and the mission of the Messiah? Look at verse 19. It says, He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Our passage actually starts by telling us how he will not do it, how he's not going to deal with justice. He's not going to quarrel. He's not going to strive. He's not going to argue or fight. He won't cry out for justice because of how oppressed and how marginalized he is. No one will hear his voice in the streets in protest or in his, his attempt to self-justify. Rather, as we've seen in the foundational passage at the end of chapter 11, what? He is gentle. He is humble. He is lowly. That's the opposite of what we see here. That's why he says, I'm not going to do it that way. Think about what's happening right now. Think about this. Powerful people, perhaps the most powerful people in that, in that area, right, are 
trying to kill him. Wouldn't you think he would stick up for himself? Wouldn't you think he might like lead a group to say like, hey, I'm actually innocent here. What they're trying to do doesn't fit who I am. Can somebody go tell them that? You know, we should have a protest right in the middle of Jerusalem and show them exactly that I am the true Messiah so they can stick it. No, that's not what he's doing. That's not what he says. Carson writes this. He says, though the Pharisees might plot to kill him, he will not quarrel or cry out. Think about that. Like a sheep led to the slaughter, right? Did he justify himself? No. He doesn't have to justify himself in front of the Pharisees. I dare say if this were you or me, <laughs> right? We would have, we would, we, would, we would fire up that inner defense attorney so fast and tell them what was right and what was wrong and all the ways that we were being sinned against or misunderstood or in the ways that we think we're being sinned against or misunderstood. If somebody even remotely gets what we're doing wrong, right? Here comes the inner, inner self-defense attorney right there. No, 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 no. My client is not like that. Nope, nope. He's innocent. You don't know what you're talking about. Jesus does not do that. If there ever was, besides this, we look at this, a proof text against joining arms with unbiblical ideas of justice, I would say this is it. We see unbiblical ideas of justice in Black Lives Matter and their dismantling of the human family. Or the, we see, of course, in critical race theory and the rejection of biblical sexuality and all of that stuff. Or the right to have an abortion and calling it health care. It just blows the mind. And those are the people that we see crying aloud in the streets for justice. And yet, where does a Christian end up in all this? Those are humanistic, godless inventions that we are, are being held up as an example of the need of true justice, and they're not true. But what? It impacts us, right? Why do we feel that? Why do, why, why do we want to fight for the marginalized? Why do we want to fight for the oppressed? Because God put that sense of justice in our hearts because we're created in the image of God. We just got to get the right idea of justice here. And this is the right idea of justice. God himself is the creator of justice as well. Many causes that our culture cries out for injustice are not just at all. In fact, they're a part of the rebellion against God that he will bring to justice himself using the Messiah. Our culture doesn't know what's right and wrong. Are we really going to trust them to tell us what justice is and where justice is needed? And Jesus, again, does not self-justify. Jesus doesn't have to prove his identity as the Messiah. He is misunderstood, and of course, it will cost him his life. But he knows the plan, and he entrusts himself to the Heavenly Father who judges justly. But again, what about actual injustice? What about actual, I'm not going to stand here for a second and say that there's no actual injustice in this world. There is. What is the mission of the Messiah towards actual injustice and towards those whom are suffering? Look at verse 20. He says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. We've got some biblical language here. We've got some things that we don't use anymore. We don't really use reeds or wicks. Thomas Watson, a Puritan preacher from the 1600s, says this, What is a bruised reed? It is a soul humbled and bruised by the sense of sin. It weeps, but it does not despair. It is tossed upon the waves of fear, yet not without the anchor of hope. 
He will not let a bruised reed be broken. He will bind it up and he will comfort it. Church, we're all broken. We're all bent. We're all bruised by sin and its effects in the world, in our lives and in our hearts. And our lamp smolders sometimes and the wick looks like it, it's about to go out. And God tells us that that's part of why the Messiah came. To not break a bruised reed, but to strengthen it. To not let the smoldering wick go out, but to replenish it so that it burns brightly. And as a matter of fact, it's the plan of God in some ways, many ways, to allow sin to have that effect on us so that we feel the weight of sin a little bit, so that we know we have a need for the Messiah. Richard Sibbies, another Puritan author who actually wrote a book called The Bruised Reed, says this, This bruising is required before conversion, so that the spirit may make way for himself into the heart by leveling all proud, high thoughts, and that we, we may understand ourselves to be what we are indeed by nature. He says, some of this bruising we're meant to feel. Some of that, like, almost smoldering, we feel where we're ready, it's going to go out. Like, our lamp's going to go out. I can't do this anymore. He says, it's part of the redemption of God, the plan of God, so that we feel that a little bit. He places that weight on us. So what? So we know that we're not the all-ruling masters of our own creation, and maybe we do need a Savior. And his name is Jesus. So we feel the weight of sin before we can feel the strengthening of the Savior. So if you're here this morning and you haven't submitted your life to Christ, it's part of his plan in drawing you to him so that you feel the bruising of sin to draw you to himself. But it's not our God that does the bruising. Sin does that. It's what we need. We need justice. We need vindication from the power of sin. And in that, he strengthens us. How does that strengthen us? Look at, look at verse 20 at the end there. He says, until he brings justice to victory. And so I'll say it this way. The mission of the Messiah then is justice for the weak. The mission of the Messiah is justice for the weak. And who are the weak? Those who have been bruised by the effects of sin. This again points us back to Jesus. See, there's a huge difference, guys. Our world wants to tell us that everybody's a victim, right? But where's the hope in being a victim, right? But if we look at it from a biblical standpoint, from a biblical standpoint, we're not victims. We're sinners separated from God in need of a Savior, there the gospel can work. The gospel doesn't necessarily work when we just call ourselves victims. When we get into the arena of sin and say, no, my, my true core problem is sin. And it's not that I'm going to receive justice from this world in order to alleviate my victimhood. I need a savior from my sin. And his name is Jesus. So we've got, to, we've got to insist on looking at this from a biblical perspective, which again then points us back to Jesus. Because I don't know if you noticed every, in this world, but everybody is a victim, right? We see that all the time. Biblical, a biblical worldview says we're not victims. We're sinners separated from God, and we have a Savior. And that Savior has come to bring justice to the weak. 
all whose souls are exhausted with the drag of sin and sickness and strife and evil, all who are bent over carrying this yoke of performance, of keeping up appearances, trying to prove our worth by statuses or achievement, all who are so tired and exhausted they just feel like the lamp is about to go out. All of those who felt those words in your soul as I was reading them, the Messiah comes to bring justice for you, the weak. That's where the truth of the gospel can be a balm to our souls, where it can heal, where it can soothe, where it can restore. When Jesus did the work of the cross, Jesus resurrected from the grave in victory. That's what Matthew is calling upon Isaiah to say. He's like, guess where this is going? There's going to be a victory one day. Jesus is going to do the work that Isaiah prophesied the Messiah would do. He's going to defeat death on the cross, and then he's going to be resurrected by the Heavenly Father in victory. That's when it's going to come. That's when our fate is going to be sealed through faith in Christ. And so there's a sense that this is already being accomplished because we're in 2021, and we can look back. We live on this side of the cross, and we can say that that happened that Jesus did those things. But then there's another side that says, yeah, but we're still here. We're still in Sussex County. We're still grinding it out. The kids have gone back to school. We're still at work. Some days we feel like we're just bent over with the weight of sin. Some days we feel like our little smoldering wick is about to go out. Some days we feel weak. And church, we've got to be encouraged by this text, right? Then until... Jesus returns. We will struggle with that, but he will. And one day he will return. And one day he will bring victory to its complete conclusion. And so it is right and it's good in some sense that we feel that every now and then because we still live in a fallen world. We still got to press up against that idea that we can make this world heaven on earth. We can't. We, can, we, we should try to fight against whatever we're fighting against, but our hope can't be in making everything, rainbows and unicorns, in this world. It just can't be because it's meant for another world. Our greatest need can be fulfilled through faith in Jesus Christ now. Our guilt and our sin and our shame can be removed by the power of the risen Christ now, but we have that sense of we have it already, but not yet. Even as believers, we're still here. We're still grinding it out. That's where the hope comes in. That's where the end of the story comes in, where we look forward to that day. And until then, we just sang it, church. He will hold us fast. He will. The same spirit that rested on him that Matthew now has referenced twice, the same spirit that gave the empowerment to his ministry, the same spirit that resurrected him from the dead is at work in us. And he will power you through any season that comes your way. He will hold you fast. And that, that is real, true, and solid hope. You, you all thought I forgot about verse 21 didn't I? But I didn't. Look at, look at that. Just cling to this. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Two amazing things right off the bat with this passage. First of all, again, Gentiles, church, hey, that's us, right? We were grafted into the people of the God, people of God, right? Romans tells us like wild olive branches, right? We shouldn't be here, but we are. 
because God's plan was not just for Israel, it was for the whole world. And so we've got to take a moment and realize the grace of God in bringing all nations to himself, that we get cut in on this. We were the people outside the people of God, but yeah, he brought us in. We experience the fruit of his global plan of redemption to include people from every tribe and tongue and nation in the new covenant in Jesus Christ. But second, look at that last word. In his name, the Gentiles will hope. And camp on that for a second. Isn't hope such a beautiful, rich word? The hope that this life isn't all that there is. The hope that God is good and that he actually has a plan. The hope that he is with us in the midst of it all. The hope that they actually, there actually will be justice, actual justice someday, not our culture's idea of the justice of the moment. What is hope? It's not fickle. It's not empty. Biblical hope. Listen, biblical hope is a confident expectation of things to come. It's not that fleeting hope. It's not that I hope I get a pony. It's not that I hope something's going to happen, or I hope this doesn't go wrong, or I hope I'm not late, or whatever. All this, that's not real hope. Biblical hope is a confident expectation of what is to come. And that's not from us. That's from God, the character of God, because that's where our hope is based, in the character and the person and the work and the truth of God. That's where hope has to come from. And that's why in his name, in the name of the Messiah, that's why the Gentiles will hope. We see the faithfulness of God in his plan of redemption, which comes to fruition in the person, person in the work of Christ. Church, when we're without hope, turn around and look at the cross. Look at the empty tomb. Look at what he's done for us. He says, if he has done that, how will he not, as Romans 8.32 tells us, together with him, graciously give us all things? Of course he will. That's who he is. Hope isn't based on an ever-changing world in their events, their circumstances. Biblical hope is based on the character of God. Perfect, just, compassionate, gentle, humble. And that hope is found where? It's no mistake, in the name, in that name, that name of the coming messianic servant who we know as Jesus Christ. And think about it. Any of the culturally defined causes of the month for justice are driven by one thing, hope. They want things to change. Hope for change. Hope that things will be different, but it's all grabbing a fistful of sand. Isaiah didn't know his name, we do. Hope is found in Jesus and his justice. So I'll put it this way this morning. The justice of Jesus is the certainty of hope. The justice of Jesus is the certainty of hope. There is actual justice. There's true justice for the world. We can't know justice until we come to faith in Jesus. That's step one. Then we know justice because then God's wrath has been satisfied, which we also just sung about a moment ago, right? And also, we are then justified. We, we go from guilty to innocence. That's how, the first step in knowing justice. And we see people yet crying out for justice in our culture. Why? Why? 
that always fascinates me too. Why do they protest? Why do they cry aloud in the streets? Why are they so upset about whatever is going on? It's because they know something's wrong. It's because they feel it in their bones that this, whatever this is, shouldn't be this way. Where does that come from? It comes from the image of God that is stamped on every human soul. We've just got to compare what they're saying, what our culture is saying, to this. And when we, when we see anything that comes up against what God has told us in his word of what is true, we know it's not a biblical idea of justice. And so before we join forces and cry aloud in the streets and post on Facebook or whatever else we're going to do to raise awareness of whatever justice cause there is, you better make sure it's justice, right? That's what we have to do. But we also know that no matter what is going to happen in this world, that there is no true justice without the Messiah, without Jesus. And this world can never be sinless. This, never, this world can never be without any injustice because that's the next world. That's where we're going. The mission of the Messiah is justice for the world. No restrictions. He justifies all who come to him in faith. But God also understands that we're weak, we're weighed down by the effects of sin in our world, and so you bruised reeds, you smoldering wicks, hang on. Justice is coming. There's this idea that, that our Savior fights for you. Our Savior is our defender. We don't have to defend ourselves because we have an advocate before the throne of the Heavenly Father right now, justifying us sustaining us, holding us fast. Sin and evil will not have the last word. They cannot. Sickness will not have the last word. It cannot. So what do we do? We run to Jesus for the certainty of hope. First in salvation and then every day, every hour after that. Richard Sibbies again helps us. He says this, are you bruised? Be of good comfort. He calls you. Conceal not your wounds. Open up all before him and go to Christ. There is more mercy in him than sin in you. You feel that? There's more mercy in Christ than sin in us. The certainty of hope is not found in politics or in identity or comfort or that the virus will ever go away. It's found in Jesus Christ. God knows the need for justice because there never was anyone more in the history of the world who was violated, rejected, marginalized, or cast aside than God himself by his own creation. But yet he justifies himself and us in the Messiah. That's why it's the certainty of hope for us. We all need justice, justification from our sins, and then one day justice for the world. But that only comes through hope in Jesus and so it's my prayer, church, as we run into these ideas of, of what justice is, that we would, we would biblically filter them, but we'd also remember the greatest justice that's ever been done through Jesus Christ, and that the justice of Jesus then will empower us in certainty of hope. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for this word. We thank you, as Richard Sibbies reminded us, that there is more mercy in you than sin in us. And as we reflect on the truth of that word, that we can never outsin your grace, Lord, that you are never uh, without mercy, that you would show your mercy through us, 
that, that, Lord, even as we stand up to things that are not biblical or even as we say, no, that's not my God's idea of justice because that's not what he says in his word, that we would do so with a spirit of gentleness and respect that would then turn the heart's worlds through your, uh, the world of the, their hearts, Lord, through your spirit to the biblical certainty of hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.